You're listening to Cinepunked, interactive discussions for film lovers. This episode, it's Biller Time. I'm Robert J. E. Simpson, and as promised in the last show, we're deviating a little from our usual format and are bringing you another of our exclusive one-on-one interviews. The Cinepunked is excited to be talking today to one of the most individual and multifaceted filmmakers of the moment. Director, producer, actor, set designer, costume maker, composer, there's not a single aspect of a film unit she hasn't turned her hand to. A graduate of UCLA and the California Institute of the Arts, after a swathe of short films, her debut feature as director, Viva, was released in 2007. And this was followed up in 2016 by the much-lauded The Love Witch. I'm joined now via phone from LA by Anna Biller herself. Yes. Okay, so so Anna, thank you very much for, for chatting to us. Uh, you're very welcome to Cinepunked. Um, we've been chatting about um, The Love Witch in our last programme, and I, I, I think that you are possibly one of the most interesting filmmakers that, that that's working at the moment, um, because what you're doing does seem to be very, very different in, in terms of your approach. Um, I think uh, one of the things that, that strikes me in particular is, is your sense of control over the production um, and, and how that sits with sort of ideas of, of, of auteurism. Um, uh, yes. But once, you know, I started as a studio artist. Um, so the idea was that as an artist, you take an idea or a concept, you're trying to illustrate something that's complex and you do it through a form. And so that's how I was trained is that you're trying to express an idea that's a social or cultural or aesthetic idea, and then you choose a form and you try to express that, not directly but more indirectly. So for me, creating a movie isn't really just about directing actors or writing a script. It's about how does the form, um, <clears throat> you know, how, how does the form itself express the, the intention and, and the meaning? Right, so it's sort of an art school approach. Uh-huh. So I feel like making a film is is just an extension of when I used to do work in my studio. And I remember, you know, I had endless critiques for years in art school, and you you would talk about things like, I remember I remember like talking for three hours, for example, like somebody would take a photograph, mm-hmm. and it would be framed in a gilded thrift store frame. And we would spend the whole three hours talking about the frame <laughs> because it was like, because that's what art school critiques are like. So it's like you're looking at everything and everything means something. It's like, okay, so this is a photo and it was taken. But what, are, what is it? What is the frame saying about the picture? The fact that you went to a thrift store and you, you found this gold, this, this old gold frame. And what does it mean that you're framing it like that? Because it does mean something. So I learned I learned that everything means something, that there's nothing that's really arbitrary when you're presenting something to the world. And so I noticed that a lot of films are kind of arbitrary because they're put together by a number of different departments, and uh-huh. each one is working separately. And there might be some overall supervision, the director you know, supervises the departments, but often the director isn't really that interested in what the costume designer is doing or what the production designers doing, what the editor is doing, and they tend to get more interested in the editing, but they may just be kind of like a a sort of a supervisor, and all the departments are kind of working separately, and they all put it together, so you have a number of different visions, and I guess as as a studio artist, that doesn't make any sense to me to put together a movie that way, because then what does it mean, you know, I don't know what it means at that point, because if I've done five years researching a topic, and what's in my brain can't possibly be in anybody else's brain that's only working on it for three months that's been, that's just been hired as, as a job. You know, they can't read all the books I've read. You know, uh-huh. They can't watch all the films I've watched. They can't have my history of critical thinking. So what are they going to? So what choices are they going to make? So so for me, it becomes very important. Like what what colors are in the frame? What sort of costumes? you know, what the shape of the costumes are, mm-hmm. you know, how the makeup is. So these things, bec- you know, become part of the, the entire content, not just the script, you know. And they become like, so, so, I, so basically I have two scripts. One is the written script, mm-hmm. and then once I finish that, then I make the visual script. And I feel like the visual script 
become so important that when people watch my films, they tend to focus more on the visual script than on the written script. You know, it becomes more, that script becomes more important to people. A little bit to my detriment, because often they miss the written script, which actually is usually more important. <laughs> they miss the, the entire meaning of, but the meaning is there, the meaning is in the visuals, so... I I, th- I certainly think that the visuals to your films are are something that that very definitely grabs the attention and and, and brings people in, and because it stands out, it, it it's very very different from from pretty much any filmmaking that I've seen recently. Um, so your films are well. I, I've seen a lot of really I've seen some really beautiful set design and costume design in movies lately, especially period films. But I think the difference is that they're not they're not. They're not, it's not like what I do, which is choosing it for, you know, almost like a symbolic and thematic reason that goes with the overall idea. I think mm. that's the difference, and that's why people notice it so much, because the costumes and colors are expressing the same ideas that the script is expressing. So it's like doubling or amplifying the meaning. So it becomes almost funny to people, which is why some people have labeled the love which a comedy, even though it's a tragedy. Mm. It's a kind of a, sort of a, sort of like you amplify your meaning, so it becomes almost like overly symbolic. And then people think that that's just like a joke. Like, that's like um, people have called the love which a one-line joke, which is really sad because you spend years working on something, and how can it be a one-line joke? It doesn't, I don't understand. It's almost like it becomes like so much that it becomes nothing. I don't know. I don't really understand, but that's that's the impression some people get. They're they're overwhelmed by like the number of symbols. I, th- I think and so. A... They they stop trying to read the symbols anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a temptation with with your films and, and probably with a lot of films is, is people come at them very much on a on a sort of surface level, so that they they get that visual um, assailing first of all, and 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 I think most people are blown away by by the aesthetics of it. Um, mm-hmm. But they're also very keen to define things. So one of the issues, I mean, you, you've already raised it, the fact that it was labelled as a comedy. And actually, when we were chatting about this the other week, um, that was the definition that I kept on reading, was people referring to it as a sort of horror comedy, which it, it, it isn't mm-hmm. really. It, 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 it's, it's a film that sort of defies a lot of simple clarifications and, and sort of um, genre labels. So I think of something like The Wicker mm-hmm. Man, for example, which is, you know... Yeah. It, is it horror? It's sort of in that horror kind of folky vibe. I don't think it's a million miles away from what you're doing because it's also partly a musical. It's partly a thriller. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, there is a lot more going on to that than it's just a horror film or it's just a comedy. Well, I think part of the problem is that we don't actually we've we've dropped certain um, genres from film descriptions that are the most ancient genres. So, for example, we've retained comedy, but we've we've dropped tragedy. So so, people, so things get defined as drama or horror or thriller, but actually what I've made is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's structurally a tragedy. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy. Because a tragedy is where a character, you know, as you know, you know, has a fatal flaw, and that fatal flaw is very clear to the audience. And, mm-hmm. it, and it, it signals their downfall and the downfall of all the other people around them. And people die tragically because of the flaws in the thinking of this of this character who has hubris <coughs> with whom you have sympathy for. So so structurally, it's absolutely a tragedy. One, one device I use, though, is I use a, a comedy device in the middle of the film. But see, that's... <coughs> using a, using that, which is the wedding. So, mm-hmm. so, a, so like a Shakespearean comedy always ends with the wedding. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a, because it's a union. So like tragedy ends in death, a comedy ends in a wedding. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and so if you put a com- if you put the wedding as a mock wedding and it's not at the end, mm-hmm. and it's something that doesn't come true, all, all you're doing is amplifying the tragedy because you're showing what could have been. So what could have been, what should have been, and what was lost and gone and killed is also the essence of tragedy. So structurally, it's a tragedy. Absolutely, it's not a comedy at all. So, um, so people miss that. <laughs> but then people, other people aren't like sitting around and reading Northrop Fry's, <laughs> you know, analysis of of uh, dramatic structures all day like I am. <laughs> right? I, fi- I, I find it really interesting that people 
take that moment as, as being a moment of comedy as well because uh, when I watch the film and, and you know, I've watched this a few times now I don't see that that marriage as actually being something that's quite uh, jovial I see that's quite a malevolent um, sequence well it's, it's really that moment I feel like it's the moment when you have the symbol of the tarot card with the three swords piercing through the heart I feel mm-hmm. it's the moment when you feel Elaine's heart being stabbed right there mm-hmm. because it's like it's it's her it's her what you see is her is her desire her ultimate desire this is what she's wanted all along it's being fulfilled but it's not being fulfilled so it's like a trick you know, sort of like like a trickster thing you know it's like it's like the jester the trickster you know they're tricking her into thinking this is getting what she wants she's not really getting it because the sword in the heart is his voiceover what he's saying he's never going to love her he's not capable of loving her so we've already seen this echoed in the whole rest of the movie. These men are not capable of loving her, you know. Yeah. So, um, so because she she wants them to love her, and because she she somehow um, causes the tragedy and death of everyone who doesn't love her around her, you know. And we know there's going to be a tragedy when you go to judgment. So it's just been set up that way. Um, so I, I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> Most people think that, you know, romance, I mean, is, is a romance funny? Is, is somebody wanting to be loved funny? Uh, we, we live in a time where, where, like, anything that really is serious is seen as funny. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, like, like, like oh, that can't be for real. You can't be doing a real Shakespearean mm-hmm. romance tragedy because that's too silly in our day and age. So it has to be sort of, it has to be sort of a Monty Python-esque take on it. That's the only take that's possible anymore. And, it, you know, you can't seriously just be talking about love in this day. You could do it 100 years ago or 50 years ago. So it's almost like people are policing what emotions we're allowed to express. So, so there's the emotions like love. They can't be expressed in film. You can do it in music. So, it's, it's, so all, the, all the music artists, all the pop artists write about love still, and that's mm-hmm. fine. And, pop music, but you can't do it in movies. <laughs> so I was like, things have become so compartmentalized. You know, that things like glamour. See, see, pop music and pop video music videos, they have all these things in them, like love, true love, glamour, you know, things that, you know, drama, but mm-hmm. you can't have them in movies. I, I do think, again, I mean, it comes back down to that. I, I think it's the aesthetics of the film just confuse um, a lot of audiences. I, th- I think... You know, one of the things that I, I know that you've been picked, that people have picked up on with you numerous times now is the fact that people find it hard to work out: is this a film that it's contemporary set or it's a period piece? Um, and so with that, and when you kind of, if you buy into the idea that it is something that it's drawing inspiration from films of the sixties and seventies, there's a sort of hyper reality to it as well. And I think that's possibly why people skew it, why why they kind of end up thinking that this is a a film that, that that is about something else. It's you know the the comedy moments, which are needed in any script, and I mean you can have a very serious drama and still have moments of of, of levity. Um, oh, absolutely, there are jokes written in, absolutely. But but although you know Hamlet is also very funny. Yeah, full of jokes. <laughs> but uh, I I think with you, what people are trying to do is they they are so determined to label things. Um, yeah, that they picked up on that and they've gone okay. So this is a comedy. This is how we're supposed to treat this. And well, they that... should really. I mean, maybe they should also look at it more as a fairy tale because in a fairy tale, everything is heightened. You know, the, the princess is the most beautiful princess, right? And the mm-hmm. you know, in her just the most beautiful gowns. You know, she's the fairest in the land. It's really like it's a fairy tale about a princess who doesn't get her prince. Yeah. And it's made very clear in the dialogue that that's what she wants. She says she wants a handsome prince on a white horse. She says it in the very first dialogue scene. <laughs> you know. And 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 her and her self construction as a princess, as like a fairy princess in the in in the in the um contemporary world. Mm-hmm. So this is like about a character who's who's trying to be something trying to please men by being the most sexy woman alive. She's also trying to please her own internal fantasies by being the most beautiful princess in the land. And this is not at all unusual for girls. So we have all of these movies about male fantasy and male superheroes and gladiators. Mm-hmm. Big muscles and their veins popping out of their <laughs> neck and they're fighting swords 
fights, and nobody's laughing at that. <laughs> I'm just creating a, a female fantasy. It's just a, it's pure and simple female fantasy, um, coming coming from you know classic archetypes of female fantasy. But it's also what is what is doing is intertwining like the, the kind of male fantasy with the female fantasy, and showing where they intersect and and then where they they separate. So they, it's not like I want to make it like as the simplest between sex and love. Mm. You know, the men want sex and she wants love. It's more that the men just don't see her. And this, this is really the tragedy of it for me. It's that they can't see who she is. You know, they can, they can take her potions and everything, and they can be appreciative of how she's so beautiful and everything. But, they're, but they're, everybody's sort of locked into their own, their own fantasy life and their own narcissism. So in that sense, I feel like it's, it's very adult and it's very psychologically realistic. So it's not really about, it's not about, it's not about making fun of movies. It's really not about movies at all. It, it's only about movies in the sense that I'm taking my, my cinema fantasies and I'm using those. So that, that's the other layer, is that I have, I have fantasies about images, about glamour, about lighting. Uh-huh. that come from watching a lot of classic movies. And that's not a joke for me. That's, that's, those are just the movies I love and I think that are really good. And I really think that cinephiles the world over also think those movies are really good. So nobody's laughing at the red shoes, but if I'm aspiring to make the red shoes, then somehow I'm ridiculous. But um, I'll always aspire to make the red shoes because I think it's the best movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, and, and if I fail, of course I'll fail, um, but it's an aspiration. And I think other people, maybe they're, they're aspiring to make a, a Scorsese movie, a Spielberg movie. And maybe they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't really reach that, but the, the aspiration itself is taken seriously. Mm. You, you see? You're, you're... So, so my aspiration towards that is not taken seriously, which I think it should be. Because it's a human aspiration towards uh, beauty, so towards some kind of craft and beauty. Do you think that perhaps then part of the problem, part of the reason for that, particularly with the Love Witch, is because that is loosely a, a genre piece? And, you know, the industry has never been that kind to genre filmmakers. No, I really think it's because, I, no, I think it's really because of, uh, people think of it as old-fashioned. I think people are embarrassed about the past, whereas I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about the past. I think the past is better. And so it really has to do with your feelings about cinema history, I think. Like, so, so, like, people who watch a lot of classic movies, they have no problem with the love, which they don't even see. They actually don't even see that, which is funny. They don't see... They don't have a split or like some kind of like, this is so weird. Why does it look like this? Why is it lit like that? What's wrong with these people? Why are they acting that way? They don't even have, they don't have any of those, they don't have any of those, those, those kinds of um, problems with it because mm. the movies they watch look, this, look and feel that way. This is very, you know? very, very true. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where I'm, that's kind of where I'm coming from because I've watched so many of these classic movies. For me, love is just, just a movie. And I was trying to, ex- okay, so I have a script, I'm trying to express a movie. It's more that, that my thinking in terms of how do you construct a movie? You know, how do you block it? How do you light it? How do you write for actors? Is similar to someone living maybe in 1960. Mm. So I don't have, I mean, I don't have that, like, po- I don't have that much of a postmodern distance from what I'm doing. So maybe that makes me a crazy <laughs> person. But, <laughs> but that's actually where I'm coming from. It's not irony. It's not irony at all. There's no irony there, actually. In terms of, there's irony in the script in terms of the gender relation. You know, there's satire. It's a, it's a satire of gender relations. But there's no satire in, in, the, in, in, the, in the cinema itself. I'm just trying to create pure cinema. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I can take that. I mean, I think that when you look at, at Love Witch and compare it to Viva, um, you're kind of, the way that you're dealing with the relationships and, and, and I'm very aware at the moment that we're in this really interesting time in terms of um, female power and representation within cinema and the kind of the comeback to the exposés that have been going on in recent years. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can't help but view films in a different way. So when I look at your films, I think that this is great. There's somebody who's in total control of every aspect of the production. And it is very clearly your vision that is making its way onto the screen. But there's also, mm-hmm. you know, there is a satire and there is a commentary, I think, on, on, on sort of relationships and on, I mean, on the male gaze. You've, you've talked about in some of your, uh, in, in some of your articles on, on your blog about Laura Mulvey and, and, and her theories about this. And mm-hmm. Viva in particular, I, I mean, seems to 
play about with with those sort of exploitative films of the 1970s uh, and put a mirror up to them and say, look, these were actually, for me, they, they're kind of saying that these weren't that pleasant. The men are pretty, pretty horrible, pretty misogynistic. Um, but you're mm-hmm. still sort of engaging with some of the language and and sort of the techniques, um, and it. Well, see, for me, because because I like classic cinema, I'm not just I'm not. See, the, I guess the misunderstanding is that I'm engaging with the language and techniques of exploitation or sexploitation movies. Mm. I'm I'm engaging with the language of classic movies, mm. and classic movies were were kind of all. Sort of like so, so, like so, so, so. Any movie from 1972 has that kind of lighting and set design. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the biggest budget movies, like every movie, it's just a sort of, um, it's a sort. Of, there was a certain color palette, a certain type of lighting. Um, it's just the way movies looked. Yeah. So I was actually trying it, with Viva. I was trying to make a movie. That, that was set in 1972 that looked like it came from 1972. And the reason for that is that, that I was trying to imitate the, the Playboy magazine and trying to recreate the world of Playboy magazine at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the imagery did come from Playboy, from Playboys from 1972. But with The Love Witch, I was trying to do something different. So I guess, you know, for The Love Witch, I was just trying to create a world that seemed witchy you know, it seemed like a world of witches, and fa- and so this stuff type of fantasy in terms of witches wearing capes and cloaks and wreaths and um, you know having fire and 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 this this type of you know long black hair and just sort of a mythic idea of witches and how witches live, and also this idea of of the main character having this kind of bewitching glamour and you know glamour, mm-hmm. you know the word glamour has to do with bewitching. Yeah. So the idea is that, is, that I, is that for the films, I'm trying to take the film and place it within the world that the script creates. There's a sort of a world, and the world is full of just kind of um, obvious symbols that you can use. And so I really love to bring out all of those symbols, like all the ideas about the symbolic visual world um, not it's it's not dissimilar to Robert Avery's film The Witch in that sense mm-hmm. because he was trying to create a world of symbols of witches, and and that was I guess 17th century, and this is modern day, but it was still sort it's still sort of this idea of trying to create this mythology, and this visual mythology around the world that you're creating. So um, and I guess again the the, the disconnect is me not not. Um, I'm not, I'm not copying other. I'm not trying to copy other movies. Mm. What I'm doing is I'm just using different, uh, a more classical form of um, cinematography. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, so, I, <laughs> that's really all it is. I mean, because 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 cinematography changed really radically in the '70s, going and later, to the point where the kinds of light just just even if you light something, um, with the kind of hard lighting. Um, and key lighting, and use all these different lights to define a face, for example, that already looks very, very retro. Mm-hmm. Um, but fashion photographers do it all the time. Um, this, is a, this is a type of photography that's a kind of, it's classic photography. And you use, if you use classic photography in a modern movie, people think it's, a, it's an old movie. And it's just really the type of lighting that I, that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, portrait photography. I do, so I do again, if you look at if you look at a Michael Powell film, you look at every close up in the red shoes and in any Michael Powell film, you see this 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 extraordinary lighting. It's bringing out the cheekbones, highlighting. You know, there's a pain in the eyes. The hair is a back. The hair has a, has a, has a backlight, so there's a, there's a shine on the back of the hair. It's separated mm. from the background. It looks three dimensional. That's what we were doing. We we're doing that kind of lighting. That has nothing to do with exploitation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so maybe Russ Meyer also lit his actresses nicely, but but but, but again, so did every, so, you know, so did um, right Jack Cardiff, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't see so so I don't see the exploitation connection in terms of how it looks, I, other than when you actually have shots of people that are nude or having sex or something. 
I don't really see that. And there's so little of the love which that that is about nudity or anything like that. No, um, I I, I guess for me it's maybe some of the content sometimes or some of the thematic issues. Uh, I mean, so witchcraft, for instance, is something that that for me, I mean, I have a, you know, the the horror films that I watched growing up, um, you know, the Hammer Gothics and things were were, were stuff that were were gorgeous. This was all part of it. I always um, personally got very absorbed into anything that involved witchcrafts and the occult. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. In the sixties and seventies, I know there was a big push towards the towards witchcraft and the occult. And so that, yeah, that was part of it in designing Elaine's look and all of that. But um, and I mean, you, you know, told... I didn't grow up watching. I didn't grow up watching those films myself, and I don't. I really haven't seen that many. Of, I mean, I, I like some of the Hammer films, but uh-huh. I really don't have much of a history of watching many of those films that people keep saying I'm I'm drawing from. <laughs> like I still haven't seen most of them. I I really am mainly watching. You know, I was watching, uh, I was studying films really more for the scripts. I was studying films like Leave Her to Heaven or The Locket or, um, you know, these films that have female um, toxic narcissists in them or sociopaths or Angel Face, a lot of noir films. I was looking at Bergman. Um, so, the, so the stuff that, so I was, I was a bit surprised because I know the imagery does, is, is witchcraft imagery, but I was a bit surprised by how nobody was um, picking up on all the actual um, psychological references that I put into it, which are, are mostly from film noir, really. Well, well I mean, there, there's something that we, we, you know, I'd love to get into because I, mean, I was reading your your recent blog on um, sort of the labeling of fem- films as feminist, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and how problematic that is. Um, which, and I, I mean, I'm on side with you on that one. I, I do agree; it's, it it is problematic. Uh, two of the recent examples that have been healed that I have a difficulty with. Um, would be last year's Wonder Woman and the Three Billboards, uh, both of which mm-hmm. are being kind of acclaimed as, as sort of feminist films. Neither of which, to me, are particularly feminist. Other than you know, there's a strong female lead. There's a there's a female character. <laughs> that that's it. I mean, yeah, that's not enough. Yeah, that's not enough to make a movie feminist. Yeah, what three... I say on my blog piece is that you have to actually have a film that has has the specific agenda of raising awareness about inequality between men and women. Mm. Social social inequality. The social inequality between men and women has to be a conflict in the film and has to be expressed either overtly through dialogue or through the plot or, or, or conflicts between the characters. It has to be about it has to be about gender inequality. If if your film is not about gender equality, then it's not a feminist film. And this is, in 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 this is my feeling because of, because feminism is 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 a social agenda, and you know I and I don't really think films should be manifestos either. Is another thing I'll say. <laughs> I don't think that's a I don't think that's necessarily a a, a good goal for uh-huh. movie to have is is to be like a manifesto about promoting a social agenda because then it's just you know James Joyce called that uh, pornography. You know, he said, he said, if you're making a manifesto, that's pornography because you're trying to sell something. It's the same as trying to sell a car, <laughs> you know, you're trying to sell an ideology. So it's not necessarily, you know, a goal that I think films should have, but it, a, a film can have that as sort of a side goal. It can have that as sort of, it could sort of be in the film without, out without the entire film being a manifesto. Mm. Right. Um, but it has to at least be in there somewhere in the fabric of the film, in the script. Like I would say overtly in the script. It has to be in the script. So, it's not feminist film. And there are very few films. I think there are almost almost no films made anymore where that is in the fabric of the script, not for decades. And I think that is one reason my film feels retro. This is, this is the funny <laughs> thing about it. Because in the 70s and the 60s, there were movies that were made about gender issues, about struggles between men and women. There was a war of the sexes, and it was being expressed in movies, in mainstream movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing that, and actually, in a funny way, makes it feel very old-fashioned, because nobody does it anymore. Is that a conscious decision <laughs> on your part, though, to, to kind of... Of course it is, yes. Yes, yes. There's a, there literally is a speech in the, in the Burlesque Club about gender inequality. Yeah. It's literally like, there are like two paragraphs of characters speaking... And you know that those two paragraphs 
boy, you should hear how people bitch and moan. Because it's only two paragraphs in the entire film, and they're short paragraphs. And not only are they short, but they're the image you see over them is, is of a very beautiful burlesque dancer stripping. <laughs> so it's not like you're just having to sit and listen to it. You get to see that, you know? So it's not, you know, so I'm not like trying to torment people. It's like literally like maybe like a little over a minute of people talking about the history of, of women's oppression. And, you know, and it's this incredible scene with all these quick cuts. You know, of, of, a, of, of a dancer stripping. She has a beautiful body. Yeah. And and these beautiful witches sitting at a table, and everything is extremely aesthetic, and it's very short. And, boy, I have read reviews of men just tearing that apart and saying, you know, that's where the movie stopped for them, and what is this <laughs> shit? What is this feminist shit? Bullshit. And this is, you know, she doesn't know how to edit. She doesn't know what she's doing. You know, I mean, it's just people are so offended. And it's like, of course, I knew that that was not conventional to do that. But that's something that feminist movies from the 70s used to do. They used to actually, you know, have like a little bit of a lecture. Uh-huh. But again, you know, the lecture wasn't like, I'm not trying to lecture the audience. The lecture was to show the audience that that was Elaine's indoctrination from witches. She was indoctrinated in a slightly evil way because they were they were teaching her they were teaching her what all women basically are taught, which is the way you get by in the world and the way you become successful in the world is by using your sexuality, like be, being be sexy for men, and then that'll get you anywhere. That's a demonic message, by the way. It's taken directly from, from Anton LaVey, <laughs> because women should value themselves in, in, in more ways than that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, it's all, it's, it's a terrible message. So the thing is that the witches are teaching this to Elaine, and you can see that this is, this teaching has just led to her downfall. And then you see these young girls being taught that, and then, and they're going to be taught wrong. But it's not just that the witches are being taught that, it's just like all 14, 13 year old girls learn that, and they don't learn it like directly in school. They learn it from, you know, social media, from YouTube. They just learn it, they learn it from how they're treated in school by all the, you know, they, they see all the rewards that the pretty girls get, that they don't get. Mm. All the pretty girls being praised, being told how great they are, not only by boys, but by their mothers, by their everybody. See what I'm saying? So the pretty girls, the sexy girls get all the rewards. And all everyone knows that, and whether, you talk, whether people talk about it or not. So, you know, so I just have a couple, you know, I have a few sentences where the witches are teaching you know, the young girls that this is the way, this is the way it is. And they're learning that. And for me, that's a heartbreaking scene because that's what you learn when you're a girl. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not what Elaine wants. So there's that juxtaposition between what Elaine wants, which is someone to really love her for who she is. And what, what the world is telling girls they need to do, which is just be a commodity. And so the demonic thing about the movie is that she, you know, um, tries to get what she wants, which is someone to really love her through being a commodity. And and you know, and this is basically almost what almost all women do on some level. <laughs> so this is about women's lives, and you know that's and talk about not funny. Mm. That's not funny, and no. that's where that ties in with the Me, the Me Too movement and everything. All the women who don't speak up about the abuse that's happened to them because they've learned that you don't do that. You know, they learn that you be sexy, you be beautiful, you be desirable. And then when a man like touches you and it's unwanted and it's gross, you should see that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. And you should see that as a favor. You should see that as something, you know, like you've succeeded in some way in capturing a man's attention. He's in a position of power and you should feel lucky. And, you know, Women who are, are molested by men in power are constantly told they're lucky that men paid attention to them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. So a lot of this is just... What? Oh, sorry. I was just agreeing with you. I absolutely understand, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, the movie is about all that. that. That's really what the movie is about. The movie is about, is about the, the pitfalls of trying to navigate in the world being a woman. And it's heartbreaking. That's the tragedy. The tragedy isn't that men die, because the men are really just symbolic. They're not really, I mean, the men are, you know, they're, they're ciphers. Mm-hmm. 
Elaine is the real character. It's Elaine. It's it's what Elaine has to go through just to get any sort of, you know, fragment or shred of uh, dignity or or love or anything from anywhere, and she's not getting it. She's not going to get it. So and it also shows. I mean, so that's also the humor of it. The humor is that no matter how beautiful she is and 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 how nice she is, it actually doesn't work because the power structures are in place, and they're not changing. Mm, and ultimately, she she it doesn't seem. Because it has to do with the way people think, you know. It has to do with the way men think, the way men treat women, the way, what they feel entitled to. Mm. Um, so that's so that's what the movie's about. So so like you know, um, people. I, I I like the way that people take it, whatever the way they can take it, based on what they know already and what the tastes are, and if if they love Jalo films or if they love exploitation, and that's how they take it, that's great because it means that it's still accessible to them, even though they, they, they mean they like give zero shits about like feminism <laughs> or like what a girl's life is like or anything, you know? So I like the fact that it's accessible to people, but also the fact that people don't even see what the movie is about actually illustrates my point about how hard, how hard it is for girls in the world, <laughs> because you make a story about a girl and her struggles in the world and how har- harrowing that struggle is. And people don't even see that, that you're even doing that because people have so little interest in, in girls' lives, mm-hmm. that they don't even see, they don't even see they're even doing that, even though it's so overt. But girls see it. So young girls, young girls know exactly what I'm doing. So it's a kind of movie that is more accessible to like a 17 year old girl than it is to a 50 year old man. I find that interesting. <laughs> De- definitely, it, it does seem to to split the sexes somewhat. Um, I mean, I I, I yeah. think I probably misinterpreted uh, some of Elaine's. Um, processes as well i had her pinned down as a a, a predatory figure um which you i mean well, she is that's the thing oh, is she? because <laughs> we've had this she argument on the, on the podcast character. and I, I would like an answer <laughs> no she is a predatory character but but see people are, are different things mm. so we're used to having men be different things at the same time but we're mm. not used to having women be different things at the same time you know because we have so few complex female characters mm. No, we're used to, we're used to having a man who's a villain, but you also you know you have empathy for him because of this or that or the other, and you understand that he's complex, he's conflicted. Mm-hmm. You know, so we don't we don't really have that about women, but also we're so used to looking at beautiful women and just looking at them and objectifying them, and that's what the film is about as well, because it's giving you the opportunity to do that. Every opportunity a man wants to have to ogle a beautiful woman and just look at her as an object, he can do that with this film. He's being invited to do that, but it's a trick. <laughs> because it's really it's really a movie from about a woman's interior. Well, so it is almost like a fairy tale where you're given two choices, you know, and it's the thing it's just this thing it's just this just dude, I mean, it's like the the women know it's a it's a woman Mm-hmm. It's it's a movie about a woman's interior. All women know that pretty much. All, all most women, ninety percent of women, ninety five percent know that it's not about objectifying a woman. It's about a woman's interior life. Mm-hmm. And the majority of men do, do not know that. Yeah, that's probably true. And that's where the irony and comedy come in for men because they think that's why men think I'm making fun of the the sixties or something, like of the values then. No, no, no! It's about now. This movie's about now. That's why it's set now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm setting it now. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I think I understood most of that watching it. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I what know I... it's complicated. Yeah, and we're not we're not used to going into movies of that kind of. But you know, this is why I'm saying it is so much more related to the noir films, mm-hmm. right? So the difference, in my view, between the noir films and the exploitation films is that the noir films often were about a woman's interior. Mm. They had beautiful women who are extremely gorgeous and glamorous, but you're not just supposed to look at them and ogle them and stare at them like you were in a Russ Meyer movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's about them. It's about them as people. And so the exploitation films, you know, they dropped out female psychology, female complexity, women's stories, women being equal characters, and you're now just supposed to, it's the sexual evolution, so now you're just supposed to ogle women. Yeah. And the woman's point of view just drops out, which is why I'm saying my films have very little to do with exploitation, because they're, they're, they're referencing a period before that shift happened, before the shift happened where we're supposed to look at women just as objects in movies. Mm. 
And then also the shift that happened was that then you then you suddenly have the Madonna and horse split really strongly, whereas you have the plain girl, and she's a person, and then you have the sexy girl, and she's not a person. But like in the 40s, the sexy girl was a person. <laughs> you know, so, you, so this is partly the confusion, is that you have the sexy girl, and she's a person. And we haven't seen that in decades. No, I, one one of the things that you, you again you talked about on one of your blogs was the woman in peril movies, um, which are <laughs> sadly they are they are a favourite of mine. The, the idea, you know, that those kind of um, women who are in these situations where they're being psychologically controlled. Not not that I, I think this is a great thing that for people to do, but more in the sense that I, I think that there's actually a. A reflection there, and particularly at the moment, in terms of of things like our awareness of domestic abuse, for example, and you kind of look at those mm-hmm. films, and you can kind of see how how women have been manipulated and how men tried to manipulate, um, and it seems quite um quite a forward thinking kind of uh, genre, really, to to exist at all. Um, from from so Are long ago. Are you talking ago. about? I didn't hear what. I didn't oh, sorry. Hear what the first. Said. Oh, Is it, was it? Did you? Talking about the women, the pre- women like the, in peril movies. Oh, women in peril! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The and, and and it's mainly the pre-code movies. Yeah. That were so so there was so much about humanizing women. They were showing women might be like bad women. They might be prostitutes, or they might be, you know, you know, just uh, sort of manipulating men or, or, or stealing money or something, but. It always showed the, the social circumstances around how that happened. So it always humanized the woman, had tremendous empathy for her, for her because she she, she was um, given a raw deal. Mm-hmm. She came, you know, she came from poverty. She tried every way possible to, to be legitimate and do things a legitimate way. Men were terrible to her. You know, and then she, she had really bad breaks. You know, and this is the only way she. The only thing she can do to survive, and often then there's then there's a story in there. Like I just saw this great movie again, uh, this pre-code movie called Millie. So you see a woman like that; she's a fallen woman, you know, et cetera. She's she's like lost her her daughter because her husband took her daughter because she was such you know just just to give her up to the divorce. He was having all these affairs, but then then in the end, she like shoots a man who's trying to molest her teenage daughter, <laughs> and. And and it's like so show she she's she's inside she's mm-hmm. just this kind of tigress who will do anything to protect her daughter so she's like this incredible mother you know she's done the reason she gave up her daughter is because she wanted her daughter to have more than she could give her you know, she wanted her to have a good life and everything so so it just shows so there are all these movies like that that showed women and they're just like these these incredible people who can just survive anything and they're they're incredible mothers and they have incredible empathy and heart and intelligence they're they're properly three-dimensional characters yeah they're really really they're great characters yeah and and they're just amazing and it just shows like and and they're and they're amazing the way women are amazing they're not amazing because they're like a man and they can and they can you know they can you know do you know superhero feats or or stunts they're amazing because of their traits that are really female you know you know things like um you know, just 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 this kind of um, practicality and intelligence, and this kind of fierceness in protecting the people they love, mm-hmm. and this kind of resourcefulness, always being able to, you know, figure out um, what to do next. And sometimes also their 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 intelligence and the way they can manipulate men when they have to, because the men have been so often. It's like the men have been using them, manipulating them, and they turn the tables on the man. Like a great example of that is the movie Baby Face uh, with, with Barbara Stanwyck, mm-hmm. where she she's um, and and literally this movie is so amazing because she's in the very worst circumstances. Her father is she can't believe the story. She's like her father is prostituting her out to like strange men, and, and so she's like a teenager. This is the most horrible thing. She works in this bar, and men are constantly molesting her, and everything. It's the most terrible life. And there's this older man that comes to the bar, and he. he he keeps he's giving her a Nietzsche book, Will to Power, and he's telling her <laughs> to, 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 that she has to be the, the superwoman. And, and then she takes his advice, uh-huh. and then she goes and she climbs her way up the ladder, man by man, but using using uh, Will to Power. It's amazing. 
your next project is is very much influenced by these kind of films, I believe. Um, the Bluebeard. Yeah, it's, it's going to be. It's, I'm, I'm kind. Of, I'm kind of getting sick of all the sexploitation um, references, so I might take all the nudity away from the men. They don't get to have it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's one of the, one of the things that one of the things I love about um, about Love Witch is first of all um, Samantha Robinson actually gets to keep her dignity. I mean, because while she's she's very sexy and she's in these nude scenes, she's not nude herself at any point. Um, there's always right. something masking, you know, her her erogenous zones that all the guys are kind of sitting there waiting to see. Uh, and I love that. I also love the fact that you've got penises on display because. It's one of the things that I feel that we need more of on screen because we're 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 perfectly okay with seeing the full frontal female figure, but we do not see full frontal males very often, and and you have yeah. an abundance of them. So yeah, so I, my my principle starting with making Viva was that I, if I'm going to have um, female nudity, I have to have equal an equal amount of male nudity, otherwise I won't do it. Yeah, you no, know, because it, it isn't really it isn't about exploiting women about showing life a lifestyle you know so witches have a naked lifestyle yeah and you know in the playboy there were so many nudists and all the scenes and, and scenes with um yeah all kinds of naked it's a lot of the playboy cartoons that i just found all these naked people <laughs> so just trying to draw from those but yeah um <laughs> from the next one it'll, it'll be much more directly referencing the war film in a way that i think people will finally see that's what it is Mm. But, you know, I, um, I, I think I've been a little bit timid or fearful. I've, I, I, I've been a little bit like Elaine in the sense that I've been afraid to not please you, you know, <laughs> in my filmmaking. I mean, right. I like, like, like I have wanted, you know, I have wanted to maybe give them some sexual entertainment very uniquely in a way. Say, well, can I have my movie where you, you know, where you, where you look at it, where you see. And I think, you know, this is partly because I've been literally directly told by programmers that they needed to see more nudity in my films. Right. Or they wouldn't program them. I actually had a male programmer tell me that. My films are too family-friendly. This is when I was making shorts. And it never even occurred to me to put nudity or violence in a movie. I just never even thought about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, is that, is that the way to make a movie and get people to watch it? Well, it, it seems like it certainly is. But then when you do it... Then they ignore everything else you're trying to do, and they and they only focus on. Well, I I would love to to see your next feature kind of flaunt that because I mean surely by now, um your your filmmaking is recognised enough that that people aren't don't need that that they know that the, your filmmaking is excellent that it that, that there's great ideas and concepts and and, and everything else and that that's what should be encouraged not uh, mere titillation. Yeah, yeah, like hopefully, yeah. I, I'm feeling more confident. I, I have a script that's very much like a, almost like a Hitchcock script. It's very much like a, um, like one of those classic women in peril pictures. I'm quite excited about it. Okay, well, I, I I can't wait to see that. I got to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do want to kind of briefly touch, if we can, on on sort of your process because it does seem to take you a long time to make each of your films as well. Um, is that because you're so uh, I mean, you you control pretty much every department of a film. It seems. Yeah, that, yeah, it, it's it's but it's a lot of it is budget actually too, because because we we just we just simply didn't have the pre production budget for the costumes and the sets, and I just didn't know how to come up with more money. And okay. so it's it's like you can spend a year, for example, or two years, three years. People spend raising more money. Mm. And during that time when I was trying to raise more money, I just started sewing and designing <laughs> while I was doing that. And I, it, it turns out I didn't raise any more money, but then I suddenly had how all the stuff I needed <laughs> to actually shoot the movie. So that's totally what happened. Brilliant. <laughs> so have you started work <laughs> on, on the costumes for, for Bluebeard then? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm determined to get more money this time and to not do that. To be more like that. I really want it. So I, I, I have been doing um, mood boards, storyboards, things like that, the things that a director is supposed, supposed to do. Uh-huh. But I'm, I'm stopping myself from doing anything a director doesn't normally do. And, and I'm determined to find enough money to hire designers and do the regular process. Because I can't, I, I can't just spend years. I, can't, I don't want to have years and years. 
So we'll see. I mean, I think now I, I have enough. Um, again, I, I, the love which is popular enough that hopefully I can raise enough money this time so that it can, we can do a process. Does that mean that you're not going to be acting anymore either? Well, I didn't act in the love which. No, and, you didn't. Um, I was somewhat yeah, disappointed. I <laughs> well, it's, 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 I, so I am I'm trying, rather than trying to take on more roles, I'm trying to give away roles. So acting was the first thing I gave up, and it was a big relief, you know, mm. having to act as well as do everything else. Because acting is a difficult job. Yeah. You know, it's a very t- so it's one of the toughest jobs on set. Um, so not to have to do that was good. And so I'm, I also would like to like not have to be decorating the set, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I think that seems fair enough. Um I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know you've you've, you've been very good in giving us uh, as much as you have. Um, just out of curiosity, we're having a, a a big public debate in a couple of weeks' time at a film festival here, and we're getting into the the art versus artist debate. And I would just be kind of interested in your take on that. The, I, the particularly kind of post Weinstein, where we're sort of, I think we're we're kind of looking back at at filmmakers and productions. And sort of seeing the behaviour of certain individuals, pretty much ubiquitously men, um, and looking back at their work, and is that making it more problematic? Is, is that does that change how you view someone's work? Do you think? Well, here's well here's 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 the oh you mean does um does knowledge about how people have conducted themselves in the past change how I view their work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, well, what I'd have to say is that usually, um, usually, if if people are are pro- if men are problematic, it shows in their work. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been fans of most of the people that have come out and been condemned because there's a lot of misogyny and sexism in the work anyway. Mm-hmm. I would say the 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 the, um, the exception to that is Roman Polanski, whose work I find really great um you know i don't i don't find the work to be problematic in its content or execution at all mm-hmm. so so i struggle with that a little bit but no i don't um but but so that's the only case where i would I maybe have to struggle um and i i guess here's my real answer and, and I, I know this sounds really cynical and terrible mm-hmm. um but i would say um the, the number of men who are dastardly to women is so high in terms of the percentage, and especially men in power. Mm-hmm. It, it, a lot of times it's a question not of, of who's terrible, but who's been caught at being terrible. So I've lived my whole life knowing a lot of men who have been really bad to women um, and being hurt by a lot of them, some of them. And... Um, I haven't. I, I'm not. A, I haven't been in a position really to wholesale reject all of those men. Um, what you do is hope that the men learn, and, and I feel like especially men who are maybe like sexually active in the '70s. So, see, that's kind of what my my movie Viva is about. Mm-hmm. It's about how what was being promoted at the time in in the in the culture was so toxic to women that most men felt like they had the freedom to behave that way towards women. Not only the freedom, but almost, um, they were almost shamed if they didn't behave that way towards women. So groping women, uh, forcing yourself on women, picking up on young girls, that stuff was so in style, and it was so practiced by everyone, unless it was like someone who's considered like a a family man, a, a very strict Christian or Mm-hmm. Everybody else was behaving that way. Um, <laughs> if you look back in movies, even mainstream movies at the time, you see how men treated women in movies, and it was considered completely fine. Yeah. So it's it's it's. I, so I think it's um, men really just didn't have haven't really had the awareness of how of women as people. I think for for a lot of. Um, you know, since the sexual revolution, I think that men's awareness of women as people has not been very high up until recently, when it's when, when they've had they've had to be aware of that. So, 
And this is one reason I, I love classic movies is because they were before that time of that really extreme toxic misogyny and Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess that's what I mean when I say I don't like most of the movies that men make um, in the past few decades, but because they're made with that mindset. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I don't know if it's so helpful and it's just to necessarily single out the few men. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like it's more it's more like changing the culture is, is what's important. I, I think that uh, cynical that may have been, I think, is also very accurate, and uh, I think it's a really good observation to make. And and you know, I I couldn't not um, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask you, particularly bearing in mind I, I, what I feel is coming from your work and how I'm responding to it, and I think how other people are responding to it. So, so thank you for 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 doing that. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully your you you know your films are. Are going to help influence people to sort of change that attitude as well, um, because I think they should. Yeah, if I can, if I can get. See, this is the interesting thing too, though, is that um, you would think that things are changing where people would be clamoring to work with me as a female, you know, produce my film, my next film, as mm-hmm. a female director working in Hollywood. That's not necessarily going to be the case. I'm realizing because because I'm I'm seeing scripts. That are uh, extremely sexist. I get sent scripts that are amazingly sexist that nobody has a problem with. And then um, I think some people have a problem with my script, thinking my script is sexist. So there's this weird, like, like, like people have been so indoctrinated by the masculine culture that they, they possibly see like a woman in peril picture as like retrogressive or bad for women just because she's not like a crazy artist. Excuse me, it's sort of like the, the environment is so screwy and it's yeah. so upside down. <laughs> I, I, I think that so like, it's... So it's a, it's a situation where somebody like um, Quentin Tarantino is called a feminist filmmaker and I'm not. <laughs> it's like, it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like that kind of environment that we're in, which is so crazy. And just because we have the, the, the female, um, the Me Too movement, doesn't necessarily mean that people know how to understand what they're seeing in a script. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, so it um, might be a struggle for me to get my film produced because people will actually read the script and misunderstand, misunderstand it, you know, um, in 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 the in the um, rather than cons- realizing it's like a radical movie for women, mm-hmm. they might actually find it. Um, they might actually misunderstand it a hundred fifty percent the way a lot of people did with the love. So that's 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 an uphill struggle. It, it's it, it's a, a a massive issue, and it's one I think we could probably talk about for a couple of hours just on its own right. Um, certainly, I, I I'm going to be one of the the many people who's there watching, waiting to see what you do with it, um, and and to see your take. And actually, I think that you know that there, I think there is potential for a movement that picks up on those pictures again because they are great kind of pictures and I think that their stories are very relevant. You know, the likes of a gaslight being remade today, um, I, I think would I think be, there's would a real interest in it. I think there's a real interest in those kinds of pictures. And I, I really think that, you know, Phantom Thread is a good example mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a, you know, like a mainstream male filmmaker taking on that type of subject. And I thought that was a great film. But I think, that the, the, again we've got the same problem it's it's more men shooting these things and what we need is is more you know more female perspectives on these things in, in every stage of the production oh, yeah, absolutely um, absolutely that's true yeah that, but it's, it's, a, it's a great step in the right direction because if, if it's almost like if a man is making films like that it does va- it does validate that type of scripted process for if anybody else wants to then do it <laughs> so, so basically all of hollywood is like a lane waiting for some for, for a guy to to validate what they're doing yeah exactly oh dear um Anna, i don't want to hold you back any longer um thank you very much for for taking the time out to chat to us um oh thank you it's been really great talking to you yeah um we, we could talk for hours hopefully at some point you know we might get to see you in these shores <laughs> and uh <laughs> do this in person at some point well, maybe when um well where, where are you in london um, we're actually in Belfast, so we're in Northern Ireland. Oh, in Belfast. Well, okay. So, that, so next time I'm in Belfast, I'll, um, I'll I'll give you a ring, and then we can and then we can have that chat for hours. 
do that. That'd be brilliant. All right, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you once again to Anna for spending time chatting with us. If you'd like to find out more about Anna's work, watch her films and read her blog, you can get all that and more via her website, lifeofastar.com. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can leave us a review on iTunes or pop us a message direct via our Facebook page or Twitter. Just look for Cinepunked. You can check out our catalogue of episodes and upcoming events via our site at www.cinepunked.com. You've been listening to me, Robert J. Simpson, in conversation with Anna Biller. Our producer was Ben Simpson. Until next time, thanks for listening.